Please take out your Bibles this morning and turn to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's account in Matthew 5. Literally, please, take out your Bibles. If that's not something that you typically do, please do so this morning. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus' first recorded public sermon. To many, it's one of the most beautiful lessons that Jesus ever preached. And as I've said countless times in this very building, the theme, the summit, the topic, the highlight of the entire lesson is Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. Everything prior to verse 20 in the Sermon on the Mount is leading you up to that summit. Everything prior to Matthew 5.20 is bringing you to that statement that he makes in Matthew 5.20. And once he reaches the summit, the apex, everything that he says after Matthew 5.20 is simply an illustration of what he capsulizes in Matthew 5 and verse 20. And in Matthew 5.20, the centerpiece of the entire Sermon on the Mount, he says this, For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus took this zealous religious group that were all about ritual, all about tithing just the right amount and, and doing all of the physical checklist stuff. And Jesus said, unless you are more righteous than they are, you will by no means enter the kingdom. Now other versions, besides this one that I just read, the New King James, other versions will say things like, you will certainly not enter, or you will never enter. Another version says, ye shall in no case enter. Jesus is trying to make it clear, look, unless you're more righteous than they are, you are not going to heaven. So then Jesus goes on, after that summit to explain the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees and how we must have more, more than what they had, how we must exceed them in that. And shortly thereafter, Jesus Christ comes to one of the most difficult to implement, but yet one of the most essential to eternal life teachings of the entire Sermon on the Mount. We begin looking at that essential teaching in verse 43. Jesus said, You've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you and pray 
for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Why, Jesus? That you may be sons of your Father in heaven, verse 45. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Don't even the tax collectors do that? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than anybody else? Don't even the tax collectors do that? Therefore, you shall be perfect or complete, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus said, your righteousness has got to be better than the scribes and Pharisees. You've got to be sons of your Father, and this is how He reacts. Therefore, this is how you must be. This morning, I want to look at those four phrases in verse 44 at length. The first one of those four phrases in verse 44. Love your enemies. Now, I'm not talking this morning national. I'm talking this morning personal. Talking this morning personal individual people. That is the context of the sermon. Love your enemies. That's hard to do. It goes against human nature. But Jesus Christ showed us how that was done. Keep your finger here and turn with me to two passages. The first one is in Colossians chapter 1. Love your enemies. Colossians 1, verse 21. Look what it says. Jesus loved his enemies. God loved his enemies. Colossians 1, 21. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight if indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. See it? You were an enemy to God once. Your sins had separated you from God. You were God's enemy. What did God do? God loved his enemy. God loved his enemies so much that he has now reconciled us by sending his son to die for us. Verse 22. Look with me in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Jesus does not ask us to do anything that he did not do first. He said, love your enemies. Romans 5 verse 6. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. I know we read these a lot, and sometimes when you hear something a lot, it loses meaning. Don't let this meaning be lost on you this morning. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for even a good man, or for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we'll be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, don't misunderstand that in verse 8, when it says God demonstrates his love toward us, that while we were still sinners, when we were sinners, we were enemies. He goes on to make you understand that being a sinner is the same as being an enemy to God. 
For if when we were enemies, verse 10, if when we were still sinners, verse 8, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, will be saved by His life. Not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. Are you glad this morning you've been reconciled to God? You were His enemy once, but God loved you. And so Jesus said, Love your enemies. You know, as we go back here, I'm going to, for those of you that are taking notes, I'm going to mention a lot of verses this morning, but, you know, showing such godly love, showing such godly love often involves overlooking a lot of things. Showing such godly love often involves overlooking a lot of things and just letting them go. How do I know that? I know that from Scripture. King Solomon said in Proverbs 19 and verse 11, The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. Solomon wise? Yeah. He said a man's discretion makes him slow to get angry. And his glory, that which that man glories in, is to overlook. Let it go. A transgression. King Solomon also wrote in Proverbs, in Proverbs 10 and verse 12, Hatred stirs up like a pot. Hatred stirs up strife. But love covers all sins. That's a point that Peter would pick up and latch on to later in 1 Peter 4.8 where he says, And above all things have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Whether it's King Solomon, whether it's the Apostle Peter, the message is over and over again that sometimes love, godly love, involves overlooking transgressions. It involves overlooking a lot of things. Godly love, such as Jesus asks us to have for one another, is a love that always stands ready to forgive. You know, when J.R. and Katie were recently in Alaska, they, they went, um, they pulled around on a cart by a bunch of sled dogs, and they said, those dogs live to run. Like horses in a, in a stall getting ready. Those horses in, in a starting gate, they live, through, they just can't wait. When you bring the call out, they're ready to go. They are so anxious, they're just ready to go. We should be ready. Anxious, waiting, just waiting for the chance to forgive. We should live to forgive. That's what such godly love does. It always stands ready to forgive despite the failures and the persecutions of others. Let me give you two, two scriptures. Acts 7 verses 59 and 60 talking about such godly love. Always being anxious and ready to forgive no matter what somebody else is putting you through. It's always anxious and just can't wait to forgive. What about Stephen? Stephen preached to the people and he told them what they had done and, and they, they're ready to kill him. And it says in Acts 7, 59 and 60, And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and he cried out with a loud voice, 
Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he said that, he died. There's something that never, I, I don't recall it ever striking me before, but when we look at those two verses, something just jumped out at me this time. When Stephen said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, it says he was calling on God and saying that, but when he knelt down, he cried out, it says, with a loud voice. Doesn't say he, he had a loud voice when he was crying out, receive my spirit, but he cried out with a loud voice when it came to forgiving those people. Did he want God to hear that more? I don't know. I'm not speculating. But, but the fact that he cried out with an even loud... You know, sometimes when we go to forgive people, it's like... <laughs> that wasn't Stephen. He was ready, willing, anxious to forgive. Another passage would be 2 Timothy 4 and verse 16. Paul says, At my first defense, no one stood with me, but they all forsook me. They took off. These brethren, none of them stood by me. Then he said, may it not be charged against them. Church ever let you down? If you've been a member of the church more than a few months, church has probably let you down at some point. Church made up of people. People let people down. It happens. Church has let me down before. Probably has you. But when they all forsook him, Paul was so anxious to forgive. He said, don't let it be charged against them. This type of godly love is a love that always stands ready to give the same forgiveness to others that God gave to them. Psalm 86 and verse 5 says, For you, Lord, are good, ready to forgive, and abundant in mercy to all who call upon you. Is God abundant in mercy to his enemies? Is God abundant in mercy to his own family? Hello, church family. Yes. God has abundant mercy for both his enemies, his friends, his family. He has abundant mercy and he's ready to forgive them all. You, O Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all who call upon you. Psalm 86 and verse 5. Nehemiah 9 and verse 17. Talks about God with his own family. He says, they refused to obey and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. They hardened their necks and in their rebellion they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. Nehemiah is saying, God, your children are a wreck. Your children have so deserted you and abandoned you and disobeyed you. Your children just messed up big time. You know what the rest of that verse says? But you're God, ready to pardon are you glad God is ready? God is so anxious to forgive you. He gave a son for you. The rest of that verse says in Nehemiah 9.17, But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and you did not forsake them. Even when they were messing up awful God, you didn't forsake them. You didn't, you didn't run them off, you didn't run them down, you didn't destroy You're so anxious and ready to forgive. That's kind of love Jesus talking about with your enemies as well. Such godly love, according to 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7, such godly love treats the transgressor with patience and kindness. Do we do that? 
According to 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, there's a whole list of things that godly love does. That passage tells us that such godly love is not envious, it's not proud, and it's not jealous. Read the bulletin article. Such godly love does not ever behave or react rudely. Rudeness has no place in this kind of love. It does not ever behave or react rudely or selfishly. It is not easily provoked, nor does it cause one to think evil or always assume the worst regarding another person. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 It does not keep a record of the wrongs suffered against it. Whether those wrongs are real or imagined, it keeps no record of wrongs. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes, it always has hope, it hopes all things, it endures all things. This type of godly love never fails to be those things. Somebody say, well Doug, you know what, you just don't understand what that person did to me. No, it's not a question of what that person did to you. It's a question of what God did for you. That's where this comes from. And what God did for us, we are to do for others if we would be children of the living God. It's the same kind of love the Apostle Paul had told Christians they must possess in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Turn there. Not only did he write about this kind of love in 1 Corinthians 13, as we just covered, but look in 1 Corinthians 6. He'd already brought it up before. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. These Christians were stealing off of each other. They were taking each other to court over frivolous lawsuits. You know what Paul says? Look at me in verse 7. He says, now therefore, it's already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? He said, look, when you go to court against each other and you're stealing off each other and you're backstabbing each other and all this stuff, he said, you've already failed. Doesn't matter who wins the court case, you've already lost. You've lost by the fact that you've got this court case to begin with. That's not love. He said, why not rather be wrong? Why not be defrauded? Why not... Overlook that and let it go. No, he says, you yourselves do wrong and cheat and you do these things to your brethren. Now, you know, we like to take verses 9 and 10 and say, well, ah, homosexuals ain't going to heaven. The context here is not homosexuals. They're included in the list. But what leads up to this passage is these brethren are not loving each other. They're cheating each other. They're going to court over things. They're stealing from one another. That's the context. And in that context, he says, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, nor thieves. Hello. Nor covetous. Hello. Nor extortioners. Hello. That's the context. That other stuff's thrown in there because it's true, but the context is, these brethren weren't loving each other. They weren't overlooking sin. Same kind of love he talks about in Romans 12. Turn to me to Romans 12. 
When Jesus says, love your enemies, this is what he's talking about. He says in verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. What does that mean? It means this. Hypocrisy means deceit. Hypocrisy is from the same word, from when, it's a word for drama when you see, as I've told you before, the masks, they used to play several roles with the smiley face and the sad face. When you see it on a drama club, you see those two faces. That's the word from whence we get hypocrisy. It means wear a mask. He says, don't wear a mask in your love. Don't come across in such a way that you're something else and you're just hiding it. Let love be without hypocrisy. Be real, be genuine, be true in your love. Don't, don't fake it. Don't play a game. Don't put on a mask. Be real. That's the kind of love he's talking about. He goes on in verses 10 and 11 saying what it's like. He says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another. What's he saying? Put the other person first. Don't be fake about it. Don't wear a mask. Don't try to convince somebody that you're doing something other than you're doing. Be genuine. Put the other person genuinely, truly first before you. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. That's love. Serve that person. Don't lag in diligence. Treat them like they, honestly, honestly treat them and love them like they are your best friend in the world. The second phrase. We must examine from Matthew 5 when it comes to our righteousness having to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees if we're going to plan to go to heaven is this. He says, phrase number two, bless those who curse you. Turn to me to the book of Peter when it comes to blessing those who curse us. First Peter, a couple of passages from there. 1 Peter 3 verses 8 and 9 say this. Finally, all of you, be of one mind, having compassion. There's that mercy. There's that loving like Jesus. Have compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Jesus said, love your enemies. Peter says, love as brothers. Be tender-hearted. Well, when you're tender-hearted, you get your heart broke. Yep, you do. When you wear your heart on your sleeve and you're tender-hearted and you put it out there, you're going to get your heart broke. Yep. Do it anyway. Be tender-hearted. He says. Be courteous. Just like love in 1 Corinthians 13, it's not rude, never rude. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. What are, we, what are we to return for evil? Not evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but blessing for evil. We are to return blessing for evil. We are to return blessing for reviling. Why? Knowing, he says, you were called to this. This is your calling. This is what we do as Christians. This is what our Savior did. This is our calling. People talk about, I don't know what my calling is. Peter says, here's your calling. To this you were called. Return blessing for evil. Return blessing for reviling. For to this you were called. Well, why? What's in it for me? That you may inherit a blessing. You want a blessing from God? Be a blessing from God. Seriously. It's not just a funny little play on words. You want a blessing from God? Peter says, then be a blessing from God to somebody else. 
This is our calling. This is what sets us apart. This is what makes us more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees is what we're talking about right here. Look what else Peter says about it being your calling in the previous chapter. Look in 1 Peter 2. He says in verse 19, For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief. Did anybody ever give you... I've had people give me grief. Some of you are smiling. Apparently you've had people give you grief too. But he says it's commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. In other words, you were right. Nobody had a right to treat you this way. You're suffering wrongfully. He says it's commendable if, if you endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? You know, if you deserve it, that's one thing. But when you do good and suffer, when you do the right thing and somebody still beats you up, when you do the right thing, the godly thing, the Christian thing, and somebody still rakes you over the coals, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called. There's our phrase again. Peter said, this is, this is your Christian calling. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in turn. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. When Jesus was persecuted for doing the right thing, when they found false witnesses, and they had to pay him to lie. Did Jesus blow him apart? No, what did he do? Took it patiently. And he trusted that in the end, God would take care of it. Let me ask you a question. Those men that put Jesus on the cross, if they never came to God's loving grace and mercies, God going to take care of them on the final days. God going to take care of it. God going to take care of it real thoroughly. God's going to take care of it as only God can take care of it. Listen. When you do the right thing, and somebody rips you apart for it, bless those who curse you. Don't return evil for evil. But understand and do what Jesus did. Commit yourself to Christ. Commit the situation to God. And let God take care of it. Because I tell you what, God will take care of it. That's Peter's message. That's what we were called to, brethren. The third phrase from Matthew 5 that I want to look at. We must not only genuinely love our enemies and truly bless those who curse us, but the third thing we must also do is to do good to those who hate us. Not just think about it. You know, sometimes in the church we have this preponderance to think about, well, you know, I ought to do that. Then we'll get together, we may even have a planning session or a men's meeting, and we're going we're gonna to talk about, well, yeah, we really ought to do that. But there's a difference between planning it, thinking about it, and talking about it, and going and actually doing it. This verse says, do good to those who hate you. That's not easy. Without Jesus, it would be impossible. But I want you to look again with me in Romans 12. Romans 12 is very similar to Matthew 5 in a lot of respects. Romans 12, turn there. As we talk about doing good to those who hate us. Not those who love us. Not those who might be our friends. Not those who treat us. Like those who hate us. Romans 12. 
verse 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Don't set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Don't be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one. Not even he who hates you. Evil for evil. Paul says don't do it. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with everybody. Sometimes people are just so filled with hate and bitterness and anguish that no matter how nicely you treat them, they're still going to rip you up. Okay. Paul says, as far as it depends on you, live in peace. You do your part. Don't worry about them. God will take care of them. You do your part. Don't say, well, they hate me, so I can hate them back. No, you can't. It's not what you were called to. Beloved, verse 19, do not avenge yourselves. Except if they really don't like you. No, that's not what it says. It says don't do it. Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. When you take vengeance, you play God. Playing God is really dangerous because you can't win. God says, let me deal with it. Do not avenge yourselves. Do not, do not seek to punish that person. Let God do it. God's much better at that than we are if the person doesn't repent. He's got a lot more tools, power, and capability to judge righteously and to mete out a proper punishment than you or I will ever have. Let God do it. It's not your job. Therefore, your job is this. If your enemy is hungry, not your friend, not the person you associate, your enemy, the person who hates, if they're hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, get him something to drink. Don't say, ah, oh, boy, how's it over there in the thirsty land? You know, you don't like me, so take that. No, that's not what you were called to. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you'll heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Brethren, listen. When we allow somebody who does not like us, when we allow our enemies, when we allow somebody who just rips us apart at every chance we get, when we allow somebody like that to cause us to be less than Christian, they've overcome us with evil. Because they've made us as evil as they are. Paul says, don't let that happen. You know what you ought to do. Do not let their evil cause you to become like that. Don't respond to them the same way. Because if your righteousness does not surpass that of the scribes, that's what the scribes and the Pharisees do. And if you aren't different than that, you're not going anywhere different than they are. You can't live less. That's not what you were called to. Listen. <laughs> Remember... Remember when Jesus was arrested that night in the garden? Okay? Remember Peter? They had a couple of swords. So, here comes Malchus, the servant of the high priest, and Peter whips out his sword and cuts off Malchus' ear. Remember? Now, Malchus and his crew is there to arrest Jesus and have him killed. What does Jesus do? Jesus heals the ear of one of the very men who came to arrest him knowing all that he, Jesus, was going to have to go through once he heals this guy's ear. I mean, if it's me, 
And if I don't know Christ, I'm taking everybody's ear off. But what did Jesus do? Jesus did good to those who hated him. He didn't talk about it and think about it only. He did it. He did good. The fourth and final verse, fourth and final phrase I want to look at from Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says not only must we truly and genuinely love our enemies, bless those who curse us, and do good to those who hate us, Jesus said that if our righteousness is going to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees, if we're going to have a righteousness that's going to take us to heaven, if we're going to have a righteousness that's like our Father in Heaven's righteousness, not only must we do those three things, He said there's one more you've got to do. You have got to specifically pray for those enemies. When was the last time any of us honestly did that? We had somebody rip us up. And our first reaction was to get on our knees and raise up that person in prayer to God. When was the last time somebody ripped you a good one? They let you down so far you couldn't see daylight. They betrayed you so badly that you couldn't believe it. The last time that happened, when did that happen? And you immediately got down on your knees and you prayed to them, prayed for them, with all the fervor that you would have prayed for your child or grandchild if they had just been in a horrible accident. When's the last time you did that? Jesus said, you want to be righteous like your Father in heaven? You want to be righteous and go to heaven? That's what it's going to take. That's not the way the scribes and the Pharisees operate. That's not the way the old man of sin does things. That's not the way the prideful, egotistical, me-first world operates. Okay, but I don't want to go where the prideful, me-first, egotistical world's going eternally, do you? And Jesus said, if you don't want to go where they're going, then you can't be acting like they're acting. You've got to be different. You know, Jesus said you've got to pray for your enemies. And you know what? Jesus knew that he was going to have to live that. Turn to me in your Bibles to Luke, the 22nd chapter. Talk about praying for your enemies. Not go into the passage you think I am at first. We'll get there eventually. But Luke 22... Look at verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And when you've returned to me, strengthen you, brethren. But Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day before you will deny me three times. Or before you will deny three times that you know me. Jesus knew in advance. We can't know in advance, but Jesus did. Jesus knew in advance that Peter was going to deny him three times. Is that correct? 
did Jesus know that Peter was going to deny him with a curse? One of the other Gospels tells us that he did. And yet knowing that, knowing that Peter, his friend of three plus years, Peter, this man who had walked with him and seen the miracles and seen him transfigured, and Peter, James, and John, the inner crew, they'd seen things the others hadn't seen. Peter had gotten out and walked on water. Peter had done all this marvelous stuff. He traveled with the Lord. He'd spent the sleepless nights. He'd seen the miracles. And Jesus knew right up front that Peter was going to die him. Jesus prayed for him. He prayed for the one who would deny him. Jesus prayed for his enemies. Now please turn to Luke 23. In Luke 23, we know the story very well. Beginning in verse 32, there were also two others, criminals led with him to be put to death. When they had come to the place called Calvary, they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. Drove the spikes into him after they'd scourged him, after they'd beaten him. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When Jesus started his public ministry in Matthew chapter 5, and he said, Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray. Pray for them. He knew three years down the road he was going to have to do the same thing. You see, it is only this sort of godly love, only this sort of godly love, the kind which is marked by full and total forgiveness that comes from a heart that has experienced that same sort of love from God. It is only this sort of godly love, the kind which comes in the same manner and amount and measure as when God forgave that person. It is only that kind of love which will help ensure our salvation when we pass along the same kind of love to others that God gave to us. Matthew 18, 21-35 and Ephesians 4, 25-5-2. You know why? Because this is the only sort of love. Genuine, sincere, heartfelt, God-given love. This is the only kind of love that separates us from the self-righteous, self-serving, me-first type of love, quote-unquote, that the Pharisees had. And Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never... Enter the kingdom. If we are no different from them, we will forever be with them. I want to conclude this morning by going back to Matthew 5. Matthew 5, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward is that to you? Don't tax collectors do the same? Don't scribes and Pharisees do the same? They love their own kind, who treated them nice. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you more than others? Don't even tax collectors do that? You've got to be better than that. If you're going to be a son of God, you've got to live like God lived. He 
If you are struggling today with a lack of godly love for somebody, if you are struggling today or you are in a conflict with somebody else, isn't it time to let go of that load? Isn't it time to just let go and let God deal with it? Isn't it time to stop carrying that burden around that is crushing you? Isn't it time to just surrender to God, let Him have the whole thing, and just rain down your love and your blessing and your goodness and your prayers on that very person that you've been thinking the worst about? holding a grudge against or refusing to forgive today so that you can now become more like God in heaven. This morning if you are weary and heavy laden isn't it time to just give up that load you've been carrying? Isn't it time to get set free and just let go of that crushing burden of unforgiveness? James 3, 3 through 13 through 18 says this who is wise and understanding among you, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, don't boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom doesn't descend from above, but is earthly and sensual and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, Gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Isn't it time to make peace? If there is anything but peace, godly, true, honest, genuine, loving, unhypocritical peace, if there is anything other than peace between you and somebody else this morning, or if there's not that peace between you and God that can only come when your sins have been forgiven by accepting His gift of grace, if that peace is not there, we will pray for you if it's with another person that you need this strengthening. Maybe you need to say something to somebody. Maybe you need to say it to them privately later on. Whatever you need to do, but Matthew 5.44 is critical for unless our righteousness, and you know the rest. You've been baptized into Christ, are you righteous with God? If you've done that, have you followed Matthew 5.44 and are you righteous with one another? If you have a need this morning, please come to the front as we stand and sing. Don't sit there in your chair and walk out in an unrighteous state.